Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the Whiskey, Jazz, and Leadership Podcast. Subscribe now so you don't miss a drop of straight talk you can't get anywhere else. We discuss the whiskeys to drink, music to listen to, and what it really takes to be an effective leader. I'm your host, Galen Bingham, the leadership strategist. Tonight's guest, leadership coach, theater director, founder of Ignite CSP, and author of Before You Say Anything, Angie Flynn McIver. Hey, what you drink? Okay, so this time I just decided that um, of my amazing friends, I needed to just catch up with one that I who I haven't talked to for a while. So this is just a random friend. I'm just like flipping through my Rolodex, a random friend, and she just happens to be amazing. So with that, Angie Flynn McIver, come on into the room. How in the world have you been? I am here. I am happy to be here. I have been pretty good, all things considered, I'd say. The world is kind of crazy, and that's why we need amazing people to stand up and be heard. So I am so glad that you are finally here on Whiskey, Jazz, and Leadership, because you and I have worked together quite a bit, but not so much lately. So there's there's a lot for us to catch up on. So my audience knows that I'm going to hit you with a ton of questions because I'm just really, really curious. But that first question on the count of three, we're all going to ask that one question at the same time. (laughs) Me here and everyone across the world in their cars, in their headphones, on the count of three, one, two, three. So what you drinking? (laughs) I am departing a little from the title of the podcast, and I hope your listeners will forgive me. I'm drinking gin. Okay. You know, we, we usually we usually go with the brown liquor, but the clear liquor, hey, if you got to go gin. I really do. And I, I have a, uh, a confession to make, which was that even gin I didn't like for a long time. So I was having a drink with somebody. This was, I don't know, probably 10 years ago. And I said, oh, I don't like gin. And they were like, oh, yes, you do. You're going to have this drink. And then I was like, you know what? I like gin. That was that. And maybe that is the experience I need to have with whiskey. So when you and I uh, are together in person, I will have that epiphany around whiskey. Absolutely. I consider consider that a promise. We have worked together on a couple projects and we haven't physically met each other. So it's kind of a crazy world that we're living in. But hey, since I knew you were coming and you are one of my favorite colleagues to work with, I decided to go with one of my with one of my new favorites. This is a whiskey that, uh, quite honestly, this was not my pick. This was something that my wife, 
heard from a friend who heard from her husband that it was pretty good. So, I mean, if you can follow that, you can you can understand that I, I wasn't really encouraged. But she brought it home <laughs> and poured it. And, oh, my gosh, this was absolutely amazing. This is called Redwood Empire Pipe Dream Bourbon Whiskey. And to add to the disguise of this being a, an amazing whiskey, this is out of Sonoma County, California. Now, California, I'm thinking wines, right? Mm -hmm. I'm thinking a number of things. I'm not thinking whiskey. But this actually turned out to be one of my one of my favorite go-tos. It's not overly expensive as compared to the other things that I drink, but I'm gonna open this up because uh you're you're one of my favorites. So let's let's crack open a favorite. Sure. Nice. Oh yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> if you heard the the uh the conversation I had with Susan Lidner, she she made a big deal out of out of my my reaction. Oh yeah, oh yeah, this is good. <laughs> well, hey, I, I'm gonna sip on this, and I, I would love for you to just get us reacquainted. Share with the listeners a little bit about your background, because you, you and I are in the same space. We're both leadership people. We both do a lot of coaching. We both do a lot of facilitation. But your journey into this space is vastly different than some of the other people that I've worked with. Not only is it different, it is uniquely, uniquely qualifying for you to be in this space, given your background. So share a little bit of that while I drink a little bit of this. All right. So I come to this work from, as you say, a unique background. I... I have a theater background. I'm a theater professional. I'm a producer and a director. I've been working in professional theater since I graduated from college. And when I had been doing that work for a long time already, I'd been already doing that for maybe 20 years, I got really interested in how we create communication on stage. And what I mean by that is that in order to make a scene or a play compelling to an audience, it has to feel real. It has to feel like there are stakes. You have to be invested in what's happening to these characters. And so what that means is that we have to really be replicating and creating real communication on stage. So I started to think, well, what would it mean to take these tools and these techniques that we use in theater that I use when I'm directing to a non-theater audience, to people in fields where they want to communicate effectively, they want to show up authentically, but there's something in the way. Uh, so that was when I got into coaching. That was when I created my company and my company Ignite CSP, Coaching, Speaking, Presenting, is a coaching company. And to your point, we specialize in communication skills. We specialize, I like to think of us as detectives of human behavior. So we really like to get in there and see what makes people tick and how that is helping them show up strongly or the places that might be sabotaging how they show up. Wow. Really, really important because you can have the best of ideas. You can have the best of intentions as a leader, but if you can't communicate those ideas, then you're, you're no better than the entry-level person that you just brought in because no one can act on <laughs> what you believe needs to happen. 
just amazing background. And, you know, the first time we worked together, I was just so intrigued by your energy that you brought to our project. It was clear to me that you had chops for the work that we were doing. <laughs> but there was something there was something familiar about your energy that I couldn't put my finger on. It almost seemed as if you and I had worked together for years and years and years and it wasn't until maybe the third or fourth time that we were together that I realized that this energy for me was that you were truly trying to make a difference in the people that we were that we were working with. Let me explain what I mean by that. You know, I, I've done a, a number of projects with people where they were reading the script, they were delivering the speaker notes. They were good, they were compelling, they were performing, but I didn't get the sense that they really believed it. And uh, I think for me, and I'm going to share this with you because this is a, an assumption I, I have, that really good actors, stage actors, don't just perform, they embody. And they step into whatever it is they're trying to deliver. They become that person. Is that true? That's kind of my, my perspective as a, as a layman, <laughs> layman to, the, to the acting world. But how true is that? Yeah, I think... I think different actors would would describe that in different ways and and from my perspective there is a it, it's almost like how you described facilitating a workshop that I can as an actor I can learn my lines and I can hit my marks and I can put on inflection and emotion that'll more or less do the job but for an audience to really feel changed and moved you're exactly right. That actor has to be invested in the reality of the situation that the character finds themselves in. Finding that, I always think of it as this engine, finding that engine of what is really driving the character, that's that embodiment that you're talking about. Perfect. So then how, how do you come to making leaders in this leadership space a core element of how you show up? Because I mean, you're still an actor, you're still a director, you're still, I mean, that's still a big part of what you do, but it sounds like more and more this leadership space is another place where you're equally showing up. How did that become a calling point for you? I was really doing this, it was really presentation skills. I was really doing a couple of, of workshops that were around presentation skills. It was very much a side hustle when I, when I first started out. I'd say it was like that for three or four years. And then I, I really had this moment, and I think you'll appreciate this, where I thought, oh, okay, I can help people get a lot deeper if I have a better idea of what I'm doing. So that was when I said, okay, I'm going to go back to school. I went to coaching school, got a coaching credential, got really deep into that. I love being in school. I'm exactly that kind of nerd who like wants the syllabus and all the reading and all the, ooh, this is so fun. And then I was really able to wear two hats. And one is the, the leadership coach hat of, you know, let's look at your goals and let's look at how you're showing up and let's, you know, really do that piece. And then there's also this piece around communicating. And that's that intersection of those two focuses are really uh, my sweet spot. That's what I really love is that how to, to the point you made earlier, how can a leader get their goals met and get to what they're trying to do through their communication. How can I open up that channel for them 
so that people can access their vision, so that people can access what they're trying to do. So I, and then the other answer to your question is during that journey, I started realizing, oh, this is where I want to be. This is what I want to do full time. And that was my company really started to take off. I'd say this was maybe mm, 10 years ago. And then at that point, I started doing a lot less with the theater that my husband and I founded. Uh, and now I'm in this kind of perfect pre-pandemic, was in this perfect position where I could direct a couple of shows a year and kind of keep my hand in, but got to do this coaching work pretty much full time. So you are the perfect person for me to ask this question. I continue to hear from everyone well, not everyone, a number of people, you know, I, I've got a lot of friends that are in, who are in this space and they may not say this, but, but the average person would say, I would rather be mauled by dogs with my body rubbed down with raw meat than speak publicly. Right. And then there's this long litany of things that people would rather do than get on stages and talk to a bunch of people because they've just built up in their minds this this massive fear. And you are running dead square in the middle of that saying, wait, 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 it's not that scary. We can do this. First of all, why are people so nervous about this idea of communicating? And then secondly, communicating in front of people seems to just heighten that anxiety What's going on there from your perspective? That idea of talking to a bunch of people makes us feel very vulnerable. It really makes us feel like we're going out on a limb. There's a writer and public speaker named Scott Birkin, and he wrote this book called Confessions of a Public Speaker, which was the, one of the first things that I, I read in this space when I was start, first starting out. He has a really great description of this, which is that when we are standing up in a room with a bunch of people and they're, we're alone and they're all looking back at us, historically for the, the history of humans, that has been a bad position to be in. That means that there's a pack of something looking at you and all you've got is your tender, vulnerable underbelly between you and them. And that's not a good position to be in. So we do what we see a lot in our work is behaviors, physical behaviors that that try to protect ourselves. So we cross our, our arms in front of ourselves. We, we move away from where we feel the eyes. We cross our feet. Uh, we talk really quickly to get it over with, to get away from the threat. And part of my work is to help people overcome that really natural fear. And, and in fact, the hormones that get generated in a situation like that, the chemicals that are flooding through our systems, to help people understand that there is something to be excited about, that if you're going, if you're speaking to someone and you have a message, how can we reframe this experience so that there is something to look forward to, that it's not just an exercise in getting it over with? You can spread out and enjoy this and decoupling that fear response from standing up in front of people. I agree. I, I went through this phase after leaving corporate America, my, my last job in corporate America was really kind of an internal consultant doing a lot of sales training and in front of people of all levels. And that never really made me nervous. And so when I left corporate America, I thought I wanted to be a keynote speaker on stages in front of thousands of people being dazzling like Les Brown and Dr. Willie Jolly and, and all of these amazing folks that I met. And the more that I tried to do that, 
the more that it felt like I was performing and it mm. didn't feel like me. And it wasn't until I found coaching that I realized that I personally, I love having what I believe is a meaningful conversation, sometimes with one-on-one, -on -one, but where we can go, go really, really deep. And I really don't care how many people I'm having that meaningful conversation with. Mm. So I can have that conversation with one person. I can have that conversation with 10 people, 40 people, 500 people, but it has to be something that I believe is worthwhile as opposed to saying the same words over and over again. And for me, that was, that was a mechanism that helped me get to where I am now. And that seems to be different than the way other people uh, approach this, uh, overcoming this fear. What are your thoughts about just different mechanisms people can use to do what's necessary for them to communicate. I really love that approach because essentially what you're doing is reframing public speaking as a conversation. And that's exactly right. And we really can think about bringing that sense of, I'm talking to one person, I'm talking to a group of people, I'm talking to 500 people. We can bring the same ease. We can bring the same fluency to all of those situations. It really is a matter of reframing our expectations of ourselves and of the audience. And it's a matter of how we practice. How do we prepare for something like that? I think one of the mechanisms that works really well is chunking it down into pieces that are manageable. Very often what I see with folks is, oh, I have a big speech. I have a big presentation. I I'm going to cram at the last minute or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this big chunk of time and this is when I'm going to practice. It's just like cramming for a, for a big test when you're in high school or college. It, you're not going to be able to get out of your own way enough to truly be present in the moment, to have that, to create that more conversational experience with the audience. Wow. And, uh, you know, that, that makes a lot of sense. Like I said, you are the perfect person to <laughs> help me with that, given the fact that you've got a, you've got a new book. And your book is about, I'm going to ask you to tell us a little bit about um, not only what's in the book, but what, what drove you to put in the time and, and the vulnerability to write the book. Because uh, I'll tell you, this is no walk in the park. People make this authoring thing look a lot easier than it actually is. But your book is, is uh, I love the, your title. You, you said, before you say anything how to have better conversations, love public speaking, and finally know what to do with your hands. Perfect title, before you say <laughs> anything. So tell me a little bit about not only what's in the book, but why in the world is now the right time for you to write this book? Well, let me start by saying what's in the book. We, and when I say we, I have a, a group of coaches that have worked with me for a long time. And the, the group of us have really refined and polished this three-step approach that the book explores. <clears throat> and it starts with this idea that you've already gotten at with it. It's this idea of intention. How do we want to affect the people we're talking to? It's almost reverse engineering our communication. Very often when we're talking, we're thinking, what's my message? What do I need to get across? How can I download all of this information? And what we're not thinking enough about is how is this person going to receive this? What's the impact going to be on them? How can I best tailor what I'm saying to reach the outcome I'm trying to get to? So that's intention. The second part of the process is alignment. And alignment is how your body and your voice and the other circumstances support your intention. And 
typically that's where a lot of people start. It's the, what am I going to do with my hands? How do I move? What am I doing with my volume and my inflection? Things like that. It's the behaviors that actually show your intention. And then the third step in the process I've actually already mentioned, it's practice. So intention, alignment, and practice. Those are our ingredients that we slice and dice and use in everything that we do, all of our coaching offerings, all of our workshops, everything. So the book really explores those three elements of our process. When you asked, what was the right time for me to write this book? I wish that I had an easy answer to that question. The the real truth is that I wrote about 85% of this book two years ago, and then I didn't do anything with it. And then people kept asking me, well, you said you wrote this book. Where is the book? And I was like, well... (laughs) I got to do all this stuff. I got to edit it. I got to do all these things. And so I kind of got caught up in that process. And then about four months ago or six months ago, I thought if I can't get this done in the middle of a pandemic, I'm never going to get it done. So I really held my own feet to the fire and, and pushed it across the finish line. That's what made it the right time for me to finish the book and get it out. I'm hopeful that what's happening with the timing of the book coming out is that I feel like with other people that I'm talking to, other coaches, other thought leaders, other people who are in this space of how do we move forward in this moment in time? Where is the deep relationship work we want to do with other human beings? The ones that we have meaningful relationships with, the ones we have difficult relationships with, the ones who are maybe on on the other side of of a gap or a chasm from us. How are we going to move forward? And we need as many tools, as many techniques, as many ways and mechanisms as possible to make this happen. And I'm hoping that this book uh, can be part of that moving forward. Hey, it's not too late. Hit that subscribe button so you're sure to catch the next episode. If you're really enjoying the vibe, leave us a review or become a VIP for guests and show exclusives. Cheers. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.